Welcome. You found the People of Chattanooga podcast, and I'm your host, Luke Swab. Today, I have a conversation with Roger Ling. He is a spelunker, which he prefers to be called a caver because that's really what it is. He explores underground and has been doing so his whole life for 40 or 50 years. Uh, back then, no one was really doing pit caving, which this area has many of them. And what a pit is, it's, it's a cave with a, a vertical shaft that is very hard to descend in. And he was one of the founding fathers of figuring out uh, how to repel and set up rigging and lines to safely get to the bottom of the pit. Uh, so we get to learn about some history of caving and some caves in the area and how dangerous they are. In fact, he was on the cave rescue team for many years. He would run telephone wire to the injured party. So get ready for the underworld exploration of cave talk with Roger Ling. All right. Roger Lang, we're on, we're live. We're live. We're live. Oh my god. We're recording. Um Roger, uh I I know you're a big time caver. I've been in a cave. Do I say caver or spelunker? You should always say caver unless you want people to think that you're not a caver. Okay. Okay. Splunk is what happens when you fall down a pit. You go splunk Ooh. at the bottom. But people like to say spelunker and so we humor that, but among among the fraternity or sorority of cavers, yeah. we're cavers. Okay, we're cavers. Um, so let's talk about some caves. What made you interested in um, caving? I grew up in Huntsville, and we had little caves, and I'm talking very small caves. These are about the size of a VW a Beetle. Yeah. And uh, when we were kids, we'd crawl into those things and just sit in there and think how cool this is. And one time we dug open a new passage and found a second VW Beetle, and we were just so excited. I was hooked on it. Yeah. Um, so then uh, where did caving, uh, how did caving progress from there, from being a little kid? Well, I was fortunate that my father had some contacts. We lived in Huntsville, which it turned out was the headquarters of the National Speleological Society. And some of the uh, greatest cavers in the world lived in Huntsville. And one uh, fellow named Jim Johnson lived just down the street from he, from me, and he was a friend of my dad's. And so he hooked us up. And when I was 14 years old, my dad took me to the club meeting, the uh, grotto it's called. And um, I was just a kid, but I was a caver. Yeah, that's nice. Um... So, can you tell us why Chattanooga area has so many caves? And and how, about how many do we have? I have lost track, but Tennessee has somewhere on the order of eight to 10,000 known caves that have been cataloged. Um, it, it may be more than that by now because there, there are people out there, probably as we speak, who are off work and out in the woods looking for caves. Yeah. Um, geologically, it's just a perfect place for especially vertical caves. Uh, there's a lot of uh, other places in this country that have caves, but you want to talk about vertical caves, this is the premier place in the, in the country. Why, why is that? Why do we have the vertical caves? We just The geology is such that uh, you can have these tremendous vertical shafts that 
are formed and um, they can be anywhere from 50 to 500 feet deep. For the longest time, we had the longest drop in the United States, the longest single drop, and I still think that it is. There's another one. I, there might be, you know, people will say, well, there's this in Hawaii and there's this in Alaska. It's like, well, that's too far away. That doesn't count. We've got the deepest. We, we still have the deepest. Have you been in the one in Alaska or Hawaii? No, I have not. Okay. Is that on the list? Probably not. Um, the Alaskan one is too hard to get to. It's basically an expedition, and it's not all that all that pleasant, from what I heard. The one in Hawaii, I'm not even sure that it's a it's a pit or it's probably just a volcano. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that might not count. Um, so what is the high? What is the biggest pit uh, that we have around here? The largest drop is um, a free hanging drop of 586 feet yeah and have you done it i have not done that in uh over 20 years now and i sometimes think i want to go back yeah and, and do that i've probably been there you know dozen 18 times something like that in my in my past yeah now have you have you climbed up that one or just descended yeah that's the interesting thing about most caves, there's a there's the occasional cave where you can rappel down and walk out the bottom somewhere, but uh, almost all of them, if you go down, you're going to come back up. And cavers are really the experts at going down a rope and climbing back up a rope. Not rock climbing. You're not on the rock. You're, you're preferably you're hanging free in this in space, and you're climbing the rope. Yeah, yeah. So you're not necessarily when you cave, um, you don't you don't really, it's not much of like a rock climbing type thing. Some, there is some overlap in this, in the skill set, but it's a entirely different philosophy. And in fact, um, more than once when I was on the uh, cave rescue team, and even before I was on the cave rescue team, I encountered uh, rock climbers who had repelled down pits and assumed that they would be able to just rock climb their way back out. And uh, that wasn't the case. And in one case, the, the gentleman was hanging 150 feet down in the middle of space because he had never seen a drop like that that didn't have a ledge or something that he could get off on. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's talk about that. How did how? What's that whole story? How did he um, did he get out? He did. Uh, he did survive that episode. Um, a friend and I. Uh, heard that he was hanging on a rope about five minutes from where um, I lived. And by coincidence, that, that friend, his name is Hank Moon. Hank and I um, were headed out to go caving, and we forgot something and drove back to my house. And um, that's when we got the word that somebody was hanging in this cave five minutes away. So Hank and I went and uh, rigged up a rope, and we lowered him to the bottom. We rigged another rope to his too short rope and at, from the top and just lowered him to the bottom. And then, so now he's at the bottom, and then, then what, was that a cave you could walk out of? No, absolutely not. So then, uh, by that point, the, the official rescue squad had started to arrive, and they sent medical people down, and I went down. And uh, eventually, uh, he was able to, we rigged him up with ascenders, and he was able to climb out and climb the rope on his own once we got him warmed up. Okay, so 
um, was was he wet? Was was he hanging in uh, water, or was he hypothermic or anything? He was hanging in a waterfall, and um, somebody who was thin probably would not have survived that experience. But he had enough. Um, he, he he wasn't overweight, but he had enough body fat that he was able to survive it. So um, how did how did you guys get word that this guy was hanging there? Every cave experience rescue or almost every dramatic thing that ever happened in my life for a period of time in the 1990s revolved around a man named Dennis Curry. He was a park ranger at Point Park and he was quite a character. He's still around but he's no longer a park ranger up at the park. But he would uh, he would keep me in the loop. If there was a new cave to be explored Dennis would be eager. He'd call me um, and if there was a cave rescue going on he, he actually recruited me to be on the cave rescue team um, later on, but if I could help, he would call. Um, now, okay, so you're on a cave rescue team. What's, what's that like? What was your job or position on this team? I had a sort of a nerdy job, but it was a, it was a great job. I ran the telephone lines. We had these military field phones, and basically just like, the old uh, cans on a string. Yeah, like a spool. Kind yeah, of. yeah, so we had big spools of wire, and you'd run these military phones, and uh, it sometimes, I mean, honestly, it might be a half mile, could be further back in the cave, and you'd just run wire all the way back there because communication is so critical in a rescue. Everybody's standing around the entrance wanting to know what's happening in there and what's needed, and if you can communicate, radios don't work. Wired phones really your best choice. So I was the phone guy. So I got to go in the very first one in the cave a lot of times. We'd show up for a cave rescue. Everybody else is gathering their stuff. All my stuff's ready because I've got it all staged. I just head into the cave with, uh, if I needed ropes or things, I could go and rig the pits and go down. And many times I was the first person to reach the patient. Oh, wow. That was, that was fun. Yeah. Um, man, I- I have so many questions about how many, how many of the rescues did you do? Do you think? Oh, not that many, but probably a, probably a couple dozen. A couple dozen. Um, yeah. And what's it like to be the first person um, on the scene to see the patient or the, the injured party or the stuck party? Well, obviously it's a little scary because you don't know how, if it's something really serious, then you're thinking I've got to do something to, to, to sort of save this person, but you know that you don't really have the training to, to do that. I mean, we, I had basic first responder wilderness training and could help with that, but mostly people weren't all, mostly people were not injured that badly. Um, it was just a matter. They had, uh, you know, a broken ankle, a dislocated shoulder, the kind of thing that they couldn't get out of the cave on their own. And, uh, it wasn't quite as life or death. As a few others, I'm sure they must have been happy to see you. Would they? Would they? Would you see a smile on their face when you showed up? No, yeah, or a sort of a grimacey smile. But yeah, they were, they were always, um, always happy to uh, see help because at that point, if you get hurt in a cave, and that's one reason why caving is such a serious sport, you get hurt in a cave. 
way back down, maybe several drops, crawlways, all the obstacles. It's a serious long wait and an ordeal to get you out of there and get you to the hospital. You're talking many hours of being in pain and, and uncomfortable and maybe maybe very, very cold. Yeah. Would you bring supplies for them? Or you just set up the telephone line, but did you have space blankets with you or anything to kind of try to get them a little warm while the, the other people were coming? I did always have some basic things like a garbage bag. Never go in a cave without a garbage bag because you might need to pick up trash, but uh, unfortunately, yeah. in a few caves. But a yeah, garbage bag is good. Space blanket, I always carried that. But by and large, these folks that I was rescuing um, or helping to helping to rescue out of the cave, they were tended to be experienced cavers that had all this stuff with them. They were prepared to to be in the cave for a while if they had to. Yeah, so, so would you say there are mostly just accidents, not um, unprepared people finding themselves in a cave and being stupid? You know, every caving accident, you can trace it back to, to you know, typically at least one, one cause. That's Often there's a root cause of some inexperience, and you learn from it. And um, I... I'd say in most of those cases, it was just a fall or a slip or something unanticipated that, that caused an injury. There was one case where an um, individual used a poor quality rope, and that was just bad a bad decision <laughs> that uh, resulted in a bad, bad outcome. Yeah. How, how bad of an outcome? Did he die? That was, that was one of two fatalities that I um, assisted with in a cave. We had we other, had other calls about fatalities they would call us if there was if there was a dead body at, at the bottom of a cliff or a slope they would call us to help help extricate and there were two cases where they were both vertical caves there was one case where the individual's rope broke because it was a faulty rope that was not properly rigged it abraded and the rope broke and he fell a long long ways into the darkness and there was a second case where uh, the individual was hanging on a rope just a short little 40-foot drop and uh, could not get up the rope before he succumbed to hyperthermia. And that was almost even worse than the fall. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be a slow one. Um, yeah. That's that's pretty sad. Caving is uh, can be quite dangerous. Um, is that common? Um, people not being able to get up the rope and getting hyperthermia? It, it does happen, um, not every day, but when you look back at the history, you look back at, um, there's a publication called the American Caving Accidents, put out by the National Speleological Society, and that goes back, catalogs all these accidents every year, every known caving accident, and when you look at those, there's just a long, long history of people getting on a rope to climb in a waterfall, and uh, caves are typically, in this part of the world, they're uh, 50 degrees. The water's going to be 50 degrees or colder. And you will not last very long in 50-degree water. So if you're a very fast climber, if you're very skilled and able to zip up the rope, you'll probably be, be okay. But if you're a slow climber, like uh, has happened a few times, these, these folks are not going to make it. So um, when they are starting to lose their strength, um, why are you not able to climb down the rope quickly, or why do they just stop? I think it's just 
it's a it's a lack of experience and familiarity with the with the system that somebody says oh i've i've repelled before i'm ready to to go do a cave and that's just not the case it's a very very specialized endeavor and you need to be able to if you repel down a rope and the rope doesn't reach the bottom you need to be able to change over and while you're hanging in the middle midair you need to be able to change and and climb up the rope and you can't hand over hand climb like Batman did when I was growing up. It's a little little more complicated than that. And the first time that you try that, you're probably going to learn some things by hanging there for a while. Hopefully it's in somebody's garage or in backyard where they can help you out. If the first time that happens to you is you're hanging in a 40 or 50 foot drop in a waterfall, you, you don't have that time to figure it out and there's nobody to help you. you you may not survive it. How did you learn how to do that, these uh, caving rope skills? You know, growing up in Huntsville, I was just incredibly lucky uh, that not only is this the greatest region in the country for vertical caving, but the cavers in Huntsville were literally the people that invented a lot of the, the techniques. Not not to say that there weren't others, but there was a fellow, um, his name was Bill Cuttington. They called him Vertical Bill. And he pioneered the whole idea of rappelling into a cave and climbing out on the rope. It was people in the past, prior to Vertical Bill, people would make ladders out of cables and things and climb down these long, cumbersome ladders. Oh, wow. And uh, Bill said it was actually safer to, to rappel. And at the time, they said he was, you know, he, he's nuts. They tried uh-huh. to, they said, we, he's unsafe. We got to get rid of this guy kick him out and you know he was right it's it much safer to repel and climb a rope than to climb a, a ladder yeah and so did you get to cave with him vertical bill yes i haven't seen him in a, in a while but um i had caved with him a few times and uh he was just a, a wonderful individual so growing up in huntsville 14 years old i my my dad signed me up right away that was my other uh lucky thing is my dad was sort of a type a personality he said so you want to go caving okay i'm gonna sign you up for this and this i'm take you to the meetings sign you up for that so i went to a vertical training class and right away i was on the rope and uh, practicing in the backyard rappelling down the side of my house <laughs> would your dad cave with you not to any great extent he mostly just got me started sure and, yeah that's cool. Um, so, do you, a lot of your friends are they are they cavers? Is that how you made a lot of your friends? At one point, caving was the major activity in my life, and it literally was how I defined myself. They say, "Who are you?" I said, "Well, I'm a caver." Yeah, and and at fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years old, my idols were these cavers that I grew up with that did these amazing things. And you'll never read about them in a magazine. Yeah. You'll never know the stories of, of the amazing things they did that were just incredibly brave and kind of, kind of crazy at times what they would, what they would do. So, um, being around them, it, it sort of defined for me, I wanted to, I wanted to be like them. I wanted to, associate with with people like that and it's a great it's a great group of people that you got something in common like that people come from all over the world to come 
cave here and made a lot of friends. Yeah, and caving is, you don't hear much about it. It is a more secretive um, activity, um, you know, it's hard to find out where caves are and that's a good thing. So people don't randomly walk in or do some vandalizing or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very elusive. People don't talk about it much. So that's why I'm real happy to be able to sit here and talk to you about it. Cause I'm just fascinated by caves. Um, I always say we're not supposed to be underground. We're not supposed to be in caves We're we're humans. <laughs> and it's just, every time I go in a cave, I feel um, like I'm kind of cheating or like a little maybe trespassing for a moment, but it's uh, it's really fun. I, I love caving. It's like seeing a different different world, and it's. I think a lot of cavers will say, you know, we know more about the moon than we know about the area right underneath our feet. Yeah, I don't know if that's true, but it is. It caving, sounds good. <laughs> yeah, caving is one of the few things, one of the few ways that a person like me, just an ordinary guy, can can go someplace and see something that no other human ever has ever seen. Yeah. And were you, did you ever discover a cave or have you been the, been the first person inside a new cave ever? That's called uh, a virgin cave. Okay. And it's, that's what a lot of cavers focus on. It's great to go see an amazing place and see the beauty of these underground waterfalls and for chambers. The first, and, for the first time. As well, even so what we call, there's, even just what we would call a tourist cave, which to a caver is is just a known cave. You're going to go, you might say, well, we're going to go see this cave. And, and people say, well, you're a spelunker exploring a cave. You're not really exploring because we probably have a map of the cave. I've got coordinates of, of where the entrance are. I know I can read and find out exactly what lengths of ropes to bring. The virgin caving, when you when you find a cave, you dig open a hole on the hillside somewhere and you start following a stream or something underground, you have no idea what to expect. And it's quite a, it's quite a thrill to, uh, to be in some small little, like you're a little in a crawl way, and then it opens up into a big room or a big pit it's, um, or just a sandy passage and there's no footprints. And there's formations and things. You say, I'm the first person to see this. That's amazing. That's something that is so rare i mean you're you're right that we've explored a lot of this world and i don't think i've ever been to a place no one's ever been before and and you have and it sounds like a few times and that's that's pretty special yeah sometimes it's very painful to uh, <laughs> to get there <laughs> yeah but let's talk about um some of the more painful uh ways to get there um, what are some of these passages you have to go through? Well, you can imagine um, the claustrophobia aspects of caving, which didn't used to bother me as a kid. Uh-huh. And now I sometimes think I wouldn't want to be back into that place where there's not enough room for my lungs to expand fully. I have to, I have to sort of suck in my breath just to squeeze through. Uh, there's, a, there's some squeezing crawling uh the some of the pain is in your knees and elbows mm -hmm. if you're flat on your belly um there was one cave that was sort of famous that we went to near huntsville that was a thousand foot belly crawl and it was super muddy you're never off of your belly it's a for a thousand feet which 
takes you maybe an hour of, of squirming oh and squiggling, and it's so super muddy that you're just coated with mud. But after a thousand feet, the cave the cave starts with a large passage, goes into this thousand foot crawlway, and then the, it opens back up into a beautiful room with formation. So you're seeing the seeing this beautiful room as sort of the payoff, but. <laughs> You you sort of know all the time you're back there. It's like okay, I got to crawl back out of here. Yeah, you want to enjoy it, <laughs> but uh, you know what's what's in the future for you. Another hour on your belly. Yeah. Um, have you ever had a slight panic attack in a cave? I've had many panic attacks out of caves, but <laughs> outside of caves, I don't know if I've if if I've ever had one in a cave. I've I've. I've witnessed people have panic attacks, and at the time, uh, I didn't understand it, but I understand it a lot better now. I think I can sympathize. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, so what else? Uh, can you tell us some of these stories from the, the pioneers from uh, Huntsville? Do you have a memorable story of these heroes that you grew up with? One of the, I mentioned uh, Bill Cunnington, who was really a, a pioneer and somebody that I was amazed to meet. And there was a book in the library uh, that I went in Huntsville. I was in high school and I, it was called American Caves and Caving by William R. Halliday. And I was reading this book and I'm reading some of these names and then I realized, like, wait a minute. I know this person, and that was a revelation to me at the time. The books were this sacred thing. It's like, oh, you wouldn't meet the people there. Not only did I meet some of the people in the book, but later when I lived in Nashville, William R. Halliday moved to Nashville, and I became friends with him. But probably um, one of the biggest influences in my life was a guy named Bill Terode. And This was a guy who was a draftsman, little... You know, an unassuming, kind of quiet guy, lived alone. What's a draftsman? A draftsman was pre-computer hmm. that did architectural drawings with a big table and a T-square and pencils. and oh, Compass an, and protractor. Right. Okay. Exactly, exactly. And so he became a, he was a, a caver who caved probably um, more days than not you could find Bill Terode in a cave. In fact, his house was over a cave. <laughs> and he would survey these caves with a tape and a compass. And I started going with him, and I would mostly just hold the end of the tape on a certain point, and Bill would and call, call out the distance, perhaps. Say, that's 98 feet, Bill. Mm-hmm. And he would write it down, he'd get the compass bearing, and then he would go home and with these notes that he'd made, and he would draw up these beautiful cave maps, all hand-drawn on on his draftsman table. But he, um, I haven't seen Bill in 20 years, but he just did these amazing explorations, sometimes by himself when he had no one to go with him, he would go on these amazing cave trips and digging ledges around 400-foot chasms, places that I was literally, I mean, I, there's one or two. I went around some of those ledges later in life, but there's, there's one that I was just never got up the nerve to try. And he did all that alone just oh. to explore, to see, because he wanted to know what was there, what was around the corner. Wow. Sounds like a fascinating guy. Is he still alive? 
As far as I know, I think he, I believe so. You should go visit him. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Bring me along. I would like to, I'd like to meet him. <laughs> um, what's the longest you've ever stayed in a cave? The, the amount of hours or days? Well, a good cave trip to me would not be that long, especially these days. Okay. But no, I'd say the longest trip I remember was maybe, aside from the rescues, maybe 24 hours or so in the cave on a rescue. But the longest recreational cave trip was maybe 15, 16 hours, mm-hmm. something like that. I mean, after eight or 10 hours, you're, you're probably getting ready to be at home and get a nice warm shower. Yeah, warm up, maybe see some daylight. And some people, occasionally you might camp in a cave, but that's not very common. It's not, it's not particularly comfortable to camp in a cave. It's not particularly encouraged mm-hmm. by cavers because there's all sorts of issues that come up with trash and waste and right and obtaining water so i had a friend that camped for a week in a cave and uh that was <laughs> i think he was quite glad to get out of that cave at the, at the end of a week um okay uh was that here in around chattanooga was that in this area yeah he was on a photo trip and they went in it was actually two two fellows i know that they went in and and spent an entire week in the cave um Hold on, I gotta plug my computer in. Charge. Okay, we're back. Um, so why was it a week? What, just to get photos, or was that like a goal? Let's see how long we can be in a cave. What was the point <laughs> of a week? Did it take that long to get to the back? Have you ever been on a cave photography trip? Uh, no. They take about a week, it seems like. You think every trip is gonna be a week because there's a phrase that you'll hear. It's called, just one more. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. I've said that. <laughs> and in those days, we were, we were shooting film, so you could not see immediately as you do now. Now you'd shoot with a digital camera, and you'd check your lighting, and we have much better lights and much more sensitive cameras. In those days, you would just blindly set off flashes. You know, a single shot might take you, you know, 10, 15 minutes to do, but then you'll have to do it again and again and again, just trying to chance upon the the right combination of lighting and exposure. Wow. Um, okay. We did uh, slept in a cave, new cave. Um, should probably talk more about safety. Let's talk about safety. Okay. <laughs> Warn us. Tell us, tell us the wise wisdom that you have for us. You know, I have said before, before to people and I still kind of believe it it's like caving when it's done properly it's no more dangerous than crossing a busy street and yet if you didn't know how to cross a street if you imagine that maybe a toddler who's maybe three years old and he's going to cross you know fourth and broad that's extremely dangerous situation because you don't know what you don't know and that's why in in caving it's it's almost like scuba diving. It's like it's like any kind of rope work. It's like it's really simple in a lot of ways, but there's a few things you can do wrong, and those things will kill you. So you've you've got to know what you're doing. The only way really to know about it, you can read about it like I did. You can read American Caving Accidents if you can get a hold of that. You can read William R. Halliday's books. But the best way to learn caving is to go with people who are experienced cavers. Mm-hmm. It's really the only way to get very far in caving. You can you could go on your own, but 
you're never going to see the best caves. And the reason cavers are secretive is not because they um, want to keep it to themselves. A lot of people that start caving, they're like evangelists for it. They try to get all their friends to go caving. <laughs> not everybody wants to. But you've got to be with people that know what they're doing, just learn from them. And I was so fortunate to be able to be in a group of people like, like Bill Road and the local club. There are caving clubs in most cities in the southeast. There's definitely Chattanooga, Knoxville, Huntsville. Very well-established groups. They're called grottos. And um, that is really, if you want to go caving, you just hook up with those folks, and they will take you caving, and they'll teach you how to do it safely and well. And you'll see so much more, and you'll be so much more comfortable <laughs> with, uh, without making all the mistakes that, that all of us make. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. Um, that's good. I know you've taken me caving before, and uh, we had a lot of fun. And you did, you did take me to a really special cave. Um, it had a big pit. We were at the bottom of it. Um, and so, yeah, you do need to go with someone that, that knows the cave and knows where to take you so you can see the nice features and have a good experience. Absolutely. And there are some caves that are more suitable that you can, you can go to. And even if you went there with just wore a hard hat and took two or three lights, I mean, you're probably going to have a good time and, and not hurt yourself. And there are many other caves in this area that if you go to them with the without the right gear, you're very likely to get in trouble or or get hurt. And when I was uh, a kid, I was and before I got hooked up with the uh, Huntsville Grotto, I mean I had the same experiences that every kid does. I went down hand over hand on a rope and then found out like, gosh, I can't get back up. And uh, that could have been an extremely embarrassing situation if I had enough friends there that they were able to pull me out. Oh, wow. The funny thing that I still don't understand is we had another friend who had done the exact same thing. That's how we knew about this cave. So what made us think that it would be different for us? But uh, me and a friend, we both, we put our knotted rope down and climbed down it. And not only was that foolhardy because... The rope could break. It's very hard to hold onto a knotted rope. We might have fallen, you know, but, but it is just physically not possible to climb back up a narrow knotted rope. And we should have tried it. We, you know, kids, you don't think this way. You don't say, Hmm, maybe I should tie this up in the tree and see what it's like. No, you just take it to the cave. Yeah. (laughs) And then you're stuck. And so you had other friends that didn't climb down it yet and they pulled you up. Is that exactly? Yeah. Yeah. They actually tied the rope to a motorcycle at one point and tried to use the motorcycle to pull me out. Um, but I think mostly they just used their manhandled as as up. Were you nervous when you realized you couldn't climb up it? Scared to death. Yeah. Absolutely scared to death. I was was probably maybe 13 years old. Um, flashlight we didn't even have you didn't have headlamps in those days had almost never been seen but we're just you know we're going caving i actually should say we were going spelunking yeah with uh with the flashlights out of you know our parents car glove box and that's <laughs> those that just doesn't work well that's a there's no point in that i mean now we can look back and i can look back and see you know i just don't understand it how, how could I have done that? And then, then I see how fortunate I was to, to fall in with the right group of people. Yeah, who said uh, you, you need more than a knotted rope and a motorcycle. 
I had a friend, David Cass, on our very first cave trip with the Huntsville Grotto. We went to this amazing great cave, similar, just huge, many miles of big passage. Uh, didn't even look real to us. And um, so we're talking about these adventures uh, <laughs> with our knotted ropes. And uh, they're very patiently explained, sort of like I would try to explain to someone. It's like, no, that's really, there's a better way to do it, and we can get you set up. And went through this for about maybe five, ten minutes explaining all this to us. And my friend David, he just kind of looks at him for a second and said, well, that sounds good, but I think I'll just stick to my knotted rope. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, I don't know if he was kidding, but it really was <laughs> amazing. Um, so you also, do you have anything else you want to say about caves? Let me just say that caves are fragile. Yeah. They're made of, made of stone, but they are fragile and they are not safe from what happens on the surface. If you dump trash into a sinkhole or dump oil down into a stream and it goes into the cave, it Mm -hmm. has very real effects. If people go in and break formations and write their names on the walls it can very quickly spoil something that took many many thousands or even a million years literally to to create so they're fragile things and we're lucky in this part of the country we have an organization called the southeastern cave conservancy and this is a group that protects caves by going out and buying or leasing the caves and it protects access to the cave much like the uh, climbers coalition does so they will um, buy a cave and protect it. And that's the best way to, um, to be a responsible caver is to go out and, and learn properly with the right group and then support a group like the Southeastern Cave uh, Conservancy that is actually out there actively supporting and educating. And uh, their office is right here in Chattanooga. It's up on Signal Mountain. Oh, nice. Uh, so we're lucky to have that as well. That's great. How, how old is that organization? Is that relatively new? Or I think the organization has been around, time goes by so fast, mm-hmm. probably 20 years or more now. I remember when it was just a a crazy idea that people were talking about over the campfire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now it's grown into one of the, certainly one of the largest cave conservancies and probably one of the larger private uh, land conservancies around. Did you know about how many caves they have in their collection? You know, I could look this up on the website, and I probably should, but I'm going to say that the Conservancy owns or leases over 100 caves now mm-hmm. in this area, mostly here in the southeast, one or two scattered around in other areas. Yeah. Nice. So if you, have, if you own a cave, you could donate it to this Conservancy if you wanted. You can. Uh, because a cave can be, I used to think it'd be great to own a cave, man, wouldn't it be cool? I could go in the cave all the time and have cavers come into my house all the time. It's funny how your perspective changed now that, now that I'm, I'm, uh, quite a bit older. I don't want people coming to my house (laughs) all the time. I don't want, I don't think it would be, wouldn't it be great to have a group of 12 people from out of town, you know, sleeping on my floor every night. And that's what cavers like to do. It's like, no, I don't want that. So, uh, yeah, donating. If I had a cave, I would con- seriously, seriously consider donating it to the conservancy and let them handle all that. Yeah. Yeah, they can do the permitting and all that kind of stuff for you. Yeah. Um, what about this white nose syndrome? What do, you, do you know anything about this? 
I'm not an expert on the white nose syndrome, but it is a fungal infection that affects bats. And bats are another aspects of, of, of caves. Cavers love bats. Um, bats are typically misunderstood, but we, I think most people do appreciate that bats eat an incredible amount of insects. Mm-hmm. And when you're being eaten up by noceums and by gnats and mosquitoes, that's because there aren't enough bats around. And um, the white nose was a fungal disease that was thought to have been brought to this country. Like, like so many invasive things, it was brought probably from Europe, maybe by a group of cavers, or it could have been a commercial cave where some tourists came and, and, and spread this. But at any rate, it's a fungal infection that started spreading very rapidly up in the north and started moving its way uh, south down towards us. And the mortality rate for certain species of bats was like 95%. It was wiping out the bats. And for that reason, they did uh, some fairly dra- dramatic things in terms of caves. They closed a lot of caves, like the state of Tennessee owns a number of caves and just closed them and said, cannot go in it. Uh, cavers have to be very careful when they're going to different caves to disinfect their gear. You can't just take the muddy gear that you used in last week's cave and bring it to another cave because there's a fair chance that it might have that white nose spore or fungus on your gear and you would be helping to spread it. Now it also spreads from bats if bats fly from cave to cave. And the good news is that it hasn't been quite as, from my understanding is it hasn't been quite as, um, as much of a mortality issue here. I mean, it is killing bats here in the Southeast, but not at the same rates, possibly because our climate isn't as severe, but it's still a very serious threat and yeah. something that's still affecting cave access. Hmm. Um, have you, have you caved in any other countries or just in America? I caved in Florida once. That's <laughs> very warm. The caves down there are 70 degrees and mostly underwater. Yeah, I would um, think they're underwater. The only other um, caves, the only real caving I've done out of country was in Mexico, which I say that we have the best vertical caves. Um, I can't really say in, in North America because I think Mexico is technically part of North America. Mexico is the caves are incredibly vast and incredibly huge. And in terms of vertical caving, Mexico outdoes us for sure. If we have a 500 foot pit, they have a thousand foot pit, more than, more than one. And it's just, that's quite a Mecca for, for cavers. Have you been in a thousand foot pit? I've been to a couple of, uh, of thousand footers down in Mexico in in years past. Um, we used to go at Christmas. There was just groups from the Southeast would just, that would be their Christmas vacation. We would go down to Mexico. We just get in our in our trucks and you'd have those old blazers or I had a Toyota and we would drive down to Mexico, down to the back backwoods of Mexico. I mean, in the, in the mountains, uh, places that I would be a little more afraid to go now mm-hmm. and actually couldn't go right now because the border's closed. But, um, the caves there are just amazing. Um, I've done some, um, some cavern diving down there. It's the same thing. Florida has some beautiful caverns to dive, but when you go to Mexico and the cenotes of the Yucatan, it's like, wow. When you come back here, everything looks small. Mm-hmm. Everything. 
So you've uh, you've done scuba diving in caves. I've done a, a only um, very limited. I am certified in what's called cavern diving, which means that you never get out of sight of daylight. Okay. Because clearly, if if you want to talk about a sport where you must know what you're doing, cave diving is right up there at the, at the very pinnacle of you need lot of expertise to do that and not die because that's one thing that will kill you very quickly uh, but cavern diving um, with with reason you're always within sight of the entrance you have a guideline it's it's a very conservative activity but I have uh, spent some time with cave divers and I really came to appreciate that what they were doing was not particularly reckless or foolhardy uh, I, I likened it to flying on an airplane. When you get onto an airplane and you're at 35,000 feet with, you know, nothing but that fuselage between you and the ground, you don't belong there. Like like you said, you, you that's not our native place, and you will die very quickly without the right things if things don't happen as they're supposed to. And cave divers are the same. They're very meticulous. They um, They're very conservative about what they do and what they don't do. And you can cave dive safely. It's not crazy uh, as you might think. Yeah, it sounds crazy. I'm not, yeah, it sounds crazy. I mean, if caving is bad, just imagine filling that all up with water and then going inside. <laughs> but beautiful. And the crawls, you, you're not crawling. You're just floating through them. So that's, that's certainly more pleasant. The, one of the big obstacles to me was just the time commitment. Mm-hmm. And the the money at the at the time this was in the '90s when I was interested in this I I estimated it took about ten thousand dollars to get into it in terms of equipment and it took you know probably two or three hundred hours of supervision before you were really ready to go on your own mm-hmm. and even then there's there's cave diving is all about and caving too but cave diving especially is all about knowing your limits. Yeah, that could be said about everything in life is knowing the <laughs> limits, all these extreme activities. Um, what, what kind of animals have you seen in caves or what, what lives in caves? You have the bats. There, there are bats. There are salamanders. There are crickets of all sorts, not only terrestrial crickets, but actual just cave crickets, which are like regular crickets, only a little creepier. <laughs> Uh, there are fish. Some of them are blind that, that live in the cave all the time. And then there are your sort of terrestrial animals that go a surprising distance back into the cave, like rodents, like rats and things like that. Um, you don't see those. You ne- in fact, I've never seen one in a cave, but you know they're there because if you were like to leave something out, like you'd leave some candy or something at a spot and come back later, that candy might be gone or moved because huh. <laughs> animal i was worried about snakes in the cave especially at the entrance of the cave one of my nightmares is to be belly crawling out an entrance and there be a crotalus horridus there's a rattlesnake right there and uh, that's never happened but you need to be cognizant of that obviously do you have any friends that's happened to had a a caving friend his name is elwin hannah out of uh cookville and he did a lot of um, looking for caves. They call it ridge walking, where you're just out there and digging in caves. And he said he had been bitten by three rattlesnakes. Uh, one of them, he just reached his arm into a hole to try to dig it out. And guess what was in there? Another time, he actually sat down on a rattlesnake. That one, 
I don't know if that one counts. I forget <laughs> what the third was. but uh, And I have laid down on top of a snake when I was uh, tired, so I understand. It could happen. Um, that's not a caving-related story no. about you. Uh, <laughs> was it a venomous snake? No, it was a harmless little ribbon snake okay. like you would see here in our neighborhoods. And, still... and, and most snakes, you know, they're not going to bother you if you don't bother them. I've certainly never seen a nest of snakes uh-huh. uh, in a cave, and that is theoretically possible in some parts of the country, maybe out in Texas, that would be a concern, but around here, not not likely. Wow. So, um, you don't only just cave, you also did hang gliding, is that correct? I was, I was hang gliding became my life, in my post-caving life. In okay. fact, one of the reasons that I stopped caving as much was that I took up the sport of trying to be a hang glider pilot, which so, is the most difficult thing I've ever tried to do, with the possible exception of ballroom dancing lessons. <laughs> Flying a hang glider was <laughs> the hardest thing I've ever tried to do, and um, it became an all-consuming activity. It's Again, it's a very it's, it seems wild. It seems sort of over the edge, but if you do it with the right training and the right equipment, and most important, the right attitude of knowing your limits— it doesn't have to be uh, that dangerous. What made you think to start doing that? How did you get interested in hang gliding? I saw a um, TV show where somebody did a hang glide, just that, that initial stepping off the cliff into space, and I thought, that's got to be the scariest thing anybody could do, and it really left an impression on me. <laughs> so you I wanted thought, to do it. Man, I wonder if I could ever do that. Um, I was given a gift certificate for a tandem hang glider, experience out at Lookout Mountain Flight Park down by Rising Fawn, and they just had the most amazing 40-minute flight of my life soaring above the ridge, and I was, that was it. I was, I immediately signed up for lessons. Mm -hmm. Um, About how old were you when you started doing that? I'd say I was maybe, maybe about 40. Mm -hmm. So from 40 to 50 is about my that was the zenith of my of my hang gliding yeah uh so what's the process of uh learning how to do that well they uh you go to an, a, a training center which look out uh look out mountain the flight park that we're lucky to live close to is maybe the best in the country certainly mm. the most prolific they train more people than than anyone else so uh, strangely some of the other places to get trained is down in florida where you get towed up behind an ultralight instead of jumping off a mountain, but but it, they also they also do hang gliding there, but you you sign up for probably a training package. You I would recommend taking a take a tandem flight like I did. Go up with a with a with a pilot where you're not in you you don't have to know anything to enjoy it, and see if you like it. And then if you sign up for a package, it's a huge time commitment because you're getting up super early. And going down there to what they call the training hills or the bunny hills, just these little hills where you learn to run with the glider on flat ground and then off a little hill and then a bigger hill. And and you do that for weeks or months or maybe years until you're ready to jump off the mountain. Is, is this early in the morning because of the weather conditions? Exactly, yeah. In the morning is when you have the least, uh, the air is the most still. Mm-hmm. And so if the weather looks good, you, you drive down there and, and hope that you, you, you almost hope that you don't see a flicker of wind 
Mm-hmm. If the breeze, if there's any breeze at all, it might be from the wrong direction, and you might not be able to even train. Yeah. So, um, when how, how long did it take you in your training before you were able to run off the mountain yourself? Well, it actually took me over two years, and that was because it was huge hiatus. I went and did about thirty different visits. I think to the training hills because I was not a natural born pilot, despite my fantasies of being so. I was I'm not any better at being a pilot than I am at dancing. <laughs> so, so I went and I I was training on what they call the little hill, mm-hmm. and I pulled a hamstring, and it just it caused this huge delay. And I always intended to go back, but two years went by. Until I finally called them and said, hey, I'm back. And they kind of looked at me funny. And my package said unlimited. And they took me back. But after that, I heard that they put a rule in place that you, <laughs> you couldn't take two years, a two-year break and then come back without paying anymore. Uh, you ruined it for everybody. So I came back and probably did another two to three months of... of going off those little hills and those are fun that's if you think it's fun to like ride a sled down a hill imagine how much fun it is when the sled is a hang glider and you're you're not tremendously high off the ground you're probably 10 15 feet off the ground at most but you're flying and it's like the greatest uh, sled run you'll ever have that does sound fun that's uh imagining almost like a zip line it would feel like it is, except you have so much more responsibility <laughs> than you do on a zip line. <laughs> and your your instructor is watching your every move. Yeah. And they have eyes literally like hawks. And they will say, you were gripping it wrong. You were gripping the bar wrong. It's like, how could you see that? Yeah. Or you didn't cross your legs right. Or they'll give you tasks to do. And every time you're, you're running off that hill, you're concentrating, focusing, and trying to, I'm going to try to do this task so that, I don't look like an idiot in, mm-hmm. in front of my instructor. So one day I'll get to fly off the mountain. Yeah. And one day you did. When did that happen? After the two years? After two years and I've forgotten the number 60 or 100 <laughs> trips to the hills. To the bunny hills. Uh, I did my, my first flight off the mountain. It's about a, when you jump off the, the mountain, the ramp at the top, it's about a four minute trip down to the landing zone. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, they call it a sled run because oh. you're you're doing it in very calm conditions as a, as a rank rank beginner, and you're just going to go straight down and circle around and then land. And uh, the funny thing is, you think all that fear I had, all that I thought that's going to be the scariest thing I've ever done to run off the mountain. After I'd run off the hills a hundred times, and you sort of feels familiar, you know that the glider is going to fly. Running off the mountain is not what scares you. It's that first landing of your life that uh-huh. you've got to land in, a, in that field from way up in the air, and you've got to circle down and line it up and land it and, and not hurt yourself and not, not look too foolish, even though it's your first flight. Yeah. So it's, a little, it's, it's more intimidating than landing off of the bunny hills? Yeah, the bunny hills... People expect, people are definitely watching, and because all the other students and even more experienced pilots some days when they're bored would just drive out there in the morning just to, to help people out or to, to watch. It's kind of a fun thing to do. 
uh, on the bunny hills, you know, people cut you slack. Down there at the in the in the real place at the what they call the LZ, the, the landing zone, the whole community of people. People live there. Um, just they live to fly, and there's always almost always somebody watching. Hey, you want somebody watching in case something goes wrong, but. If you screw it up, they will give you the hardest time. <laughs> uh, so have you have you screwed up the landing? Oh, many times. I I, I have screwed up the launch uh, many times, and they'll tell you about that. Uh, Hankline is the only sport I know where complete strangers will come up to you and say that launch sucked. <laughs> you better get back to the training hills, pal. And it's like, who are you? Yeah, <laughs> and. I know that launch sucked. I was there. I'm already feeling bad. <laughs> Do you think that's kind of good though? It's a, it's a ex- culture of extreme safety, Concern, which is which yeah. is what you what you want because it's not the safest sport. So you have to be very conscious of that. When people land, there's a there's a thing that happens if you don't flare just right. If you do everything just right, you'll skim along the ground. You'll push out the bar at just the right time and the the nose of the glider pops up and you just drop down vertically to your feet. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And there's a little nose, there's a little traffic cone there and a, there's some circle, a circle etched out in the grass and you try to land within the circle and as close to the cone as you can get. And if you nail that, that's the greatest feeling in the world. What happens sometimes if you get your timing wrong, you will either have to try to run it out or the worst thing that happens is the nose of the glider comes down and hits the ground and it makes a sound <laughs> and that's called a bonk. And if you're doing there, it's like, say it's a busy weekend and there's, there might be a hundred people down there. When, when you, when you bonk, 99 of those people are going to yell as loud as they can. Bonk. <laughs> no way. Just to make sure that you know that you didn't nail that landing. Um, and so I'm assuming you've done some bonking. I've done some serious bonking. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever landed on the cone? Perfect. 10, 10 out of 10. I came close to the, close enough to the cone and you have ratings. Mm-hmm. Um, you start out as a, first you earn your novice. It's like, I've got to earn the right to be called a beginner Whoa. in hang gliding. You become a novice and then. You you get there's a, the next one up is called intermediate and you have to do three flights in a row where you land within uh, this circle, and I did manage to pull that off uh, to get the expert rating. What's called a the novice is a hang, is a three. It's called a hang four is basically an expert and they have to nail it like five times in a row within like I forget ten feet of the thing, which is not easy to do. So you're not. So you didn't earn your um, expert. I didn't. I was n- never. I I kind of got the idea that I was never going to be an expert. I was quite happy to be a, an intermediate. <laughs> yeah. Well, if if you can't even start a novice, inter- getting to intermediate <laughs> sounds like quite the challenge. Yeah. It it's a very challenging, uh, challenging endeavor, and it's it's the cheapest form of aviation that yeah. you can do. Uh, all all of your cost is basically up front. You pay uh, a pretty, you sign a pretty big check for the training, and you're going to sign a hefty check. Um, you know, you're going to spend probably a few thousand dollars on on a glider. Once that's paid for, once all those upfront costs costs are done, you just it's like 
uh, maybe a hundred, two hundred dollars a year in membership to belong to a place to fly, and you fly for free. It's just your time. All your costs are up front. Um, let's talk more about the gear. Is it hard to uh, transport your glider? Do they break down? How do you move them? A typical glider, you'll see these. Uh, if you ever see vehicles that have these weird racks in the front off of the front bumper <laughs> i used to have that on my truck and that's typically to support a hang glider because they're about maybe 17 feet long typically as as small as they'll break down i don't i don't know the exact number but it's a hefty it's a hefty thing without disassembling it which is something you you don't really want to do um it, it's a long thing, so it's longer than most vehicles, and it's going to sit up there uh, on your car. And it weighs about 70 pounds, so it's it's a little bit awkward lifting it and, and carrying it. A lot of people store their gliders out at places like the flight park. They have places to store the glider, so you can just have your uh, your harness and your helmet and all that, that stuff with you and just leave work and go out and fly. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the weirdest... Uh rig you've ever seen as far as a car a small car or something um with a glider on top probably a vw beetle which doesn't lend itself if you can imagine <laughs> what what you want if you have a long thing like a hang glider long sort of horizontal thing the last thing you want is a round top to put it on so that takes extra x but yeah it can it can be done with a little bit of welding wow yeah that's ridiculous um would is that um, the flight park? Is that where you always would fly? Have you flown anywhere else off of different mountains around here, Pigeon Mountain? or The other big place to fly, uh, there's a club called the Tennessee Treetoppers out of um, sort of Dunlap area. They have the big, they have a big radio ramp. You can see it from Squatchy Valley. It's not far from uh, where Highway 111 goes over the mountain. So, yeah, I used to, used to fly out there. Mm-hmm. Some um, there's two or three other launches. Uh, hang gliding is so weather dependent. Um, and not only does the it need to be the right day, not not too windy. Um, the wind has to be coming from the right direction. So there's there's maybe five or six common places you can launch around here. On yeah. on certain weather conditions, how long can you stay up if you're catching updrafts? The really good pilots can stay up on even. Just any day that has cumulus clouds, which means that there's going to be thermals and rising air, really talented people can stay up for hours and hours and travel 100 miles, 200 miles or or further. Uh, If you have the the wind hitting the edge of Lookout Mountain and creating what's called ridge lift, then you don't need as much skill. And you can, on those days, you can stay up as long as you like. I mean, my longest flight was probably um, two and a half hours or so, and that at that point, it's like, yeah, I think I, I think I'll land and get a beer. <laughs> and one day, I had a, I had one day where I did two of those flights. I mean, I wasn't a, I wasn't a, um, a great pilot. I put a lot of time into hang gliding, but mostly they call it hang waiting because flying a hang glider is mostly standing at the launch site, waiting and looking and thinking, yeah, maybe in an hour. Or maybe this rain will stop. Or, you know, I'm going to wait for Luke to launch, and then maybe I'll follow him to the, to the thermal. Mm-hmm. Have, you, um, have you had any close calls with the hang gliding? I've, um, they say that there's, 
it's one of those sayings that you, that you hear about every endeavor, but they say there's three kinds of hang glider pilots. There's those that have been in the trees. In other words, they've crashed into the top of trees. And um, surprisingly to me, you can land a hang glider in a tree and walk away um, after you get down. And after you get your glider down, your glider may not even be damaged. So there's, there, are, there are pilots that have been in the trees. There are um, pilots who... I mean, maybe there's maybe there's not three kinds. There might be two kinds. <laughs> maybe there's only two kinds. The ones that have been in the trees. Right. They say there's two kinds of <laughs> okay, let's hang start over. pilots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe there's a third kind. They say there's two kinds of hang glider pilots. There's those that have been in the trees. Yeah. And there are those who haven't been in the trees yet. Yeah. And I was always in that category of the guy that hasn't been in the tree yet. And I came close enough that I swear they were there were leaves stuck to my, my body when I got down. I mean, I had some, some close calls where I misjudged things and made mistakes and, and errors that I shouldn't have made. And people told me about it later and they were, uh, I still feel some of the launches I had were just stupid things I did that I should have known better. And the glider, instead of flying the glider stalls and dives towards the trees and you just hope that it pulls up and it always did for me but i have to be lucky it wasn't skill have you ever had to land uh, emergency landing in a different field than the planned i'm assuming when you jump off the the mountain you have a planned landing zone <laughs> i would think that's part of the flight planning yeah and i think that's true of most most pilots and uh, i don't know if you're flying a uh an an airliner, maybe finding uh, a place to put down is not so easy. But with a hang glider, you don't need that big of a, of a space to land it. So you're always, always scanning and saying, where would I go if, I, if I'm not just flying uh, right over the LZ? If I'm out, out of ways, maybe I've gotten up in a thermal and I'm, I might be a mile from the LZ and I'm too far to, it's too far for me to glide back. So uh, always looking for a spot. That's happened to me really only twice. It's called landing out. And uh, one time I landed in a, in a farmer's field about a mile from the, from the LZ. And uh, the guy came driving out in his pickup truck. I thought he was going to be mad, but he said he, was, he thought, that was really cool, and he gave me a ride back up, so <laughs> it all worked out. The other time, I just didn't quite think I was going to make it. I mean, there was a tree line, and I thought, I can't quite get squeak into the LZ. I mean, I might. It's one of those decisions you make. Do I try to go for it? And if I hit those trees, um, that's like, at, at worst, that's, at best, that's a big embarrassment. Yeah. So I turned and landed in another field that was just right across the street from the, <laughs> from the LZ. And then I tried to like break down my glider and get it, in. walk it back in, you know, like without anybody seeing it. Like, yeah, because... Yeah, you know that you've messed up, and you know that... You already know, but yeah. in that community, they're going to remind they're, you. They're going to remind you, like, hey, what's that about? Yeah. Now, I heard um, a rumor. Is it true that someone has flown from that the treetop um, park in Dunlop all the way over to Lookout Mountain? Yes. Actually, um, there's some, some incredible... Um, hang glider pilots in this area. Some of maybe some of the best in the in the world that live to fly and they live right here in, in this area. And so it's not uncommon for them to launch 
over there by Dunlap and fly down to uh, Lookout Mountain. I believe it's been done where somebody launched from there, flew down to Lookout, and then went back and made a round trip without without uh, landing. But that's certainly it's possible. It takes a lot of expertise. I know people have launched from a Lookout or possibly Dunlap and gone south as far as Rome. Um, that's fairly common to land at the Rome airport. It's not something that I was ever equipped to do, but I certainly heard about it when people did it. That's remarkable. Do people fly the Tennessee River Gorge? They fly over the gorge. Uh, The gorge is not a favorite place to land. You don't really want to ever fly a hang glider down into (laughs) a gorge if you can help it because it's a lot of of potential turbulence. Uh, If you're flying great distances on a day like that if you got if you've made it to the gorge that means there's already the air is not still mm-hmm. there's a lot of thermal activity that's that allowed you to do that so and there might be some wind and um the wind down in that gorge would be unpredictable and i'm not saying it couldn't be done but you would not like to do it you would want to avoid it if you could so they like to be if you're going to make that trip you like to be thousands of feet in the air when you go over the gorge yeah have you ever done any um, skydiving or any anything else in the air? I did one tandem skydive in around 1990, and it was an amazing experience. Jumped out of a a DC three from 13,000 feet, which you know tethered to an experienced uh, skydiver, and got about 60 seconds of free fall. And then pulled the cord and then floated down. At the time, I was already flying hang gliders, so the part of flying the chute down, I, you know, that that was okay, but it wasn't as it wasn't near as good as flying a hang glider. You didn't have as much of as much speed or control. But um, yeah, it was quite an experience. And I thought if I was a rich guy with uh, time on my hands, I would definitely take up skydiving. Well, um, do you have anything else to add? You've lived an amazing uh, life of these adventures, of the caving and the hang gliding, and and there's so much more. I, I you used to write for, uh, was it Roots Rated? Yes, I used to. Uh, when and they've changed their name now to okay. uh, to something else, and I haven't written for them uh, in quite a while. But I did a lot of writing and editing for Roots Rated when they were first starting, and really an exciting endeavor about local experts giving you the, the the local expertise about different outdoor places mm-hmm. so i enjoyed that a lot yeah do you have any um future plans for any any crazy activities or what do you what do you what are you currently doing um to pass your time i think the what i look forward to most is uh, getting out and doing some easy paddling I'm, I like I like the water, and um, a couple years ago, I finally decided that one of the things I'd never done is paddle the Whitewater River. So I bought a kayak and started taking roll lessons, and got hooked up with uh, you know the Tennessee Valley Canoe Club and Outdoor Chattanooga. They have excellent, really great training programs, and went to the Whitewater School. And you know what? I decided that. I never really wanted to do the big water. I never wanted to do Chituga or, you know, Class 5 Rapids. Like, nah, I really don't care that much for that. But I love places like the Hiawassee, 
I could go in my kayak and I'm probably not gonna gonna die in a rapid and I might have to I'm there's a pretty good chance I might swim mm-hmm. I might come out of the boat and have to swim but it's just so beautiful and I just like to I like the relaxation of it more than the thrill yeah well that's great um well thanks for coming on the show this is really enjoyable for me really interesting guy um so yeah thanks for coming thank you luke i mean you are the most interesting person i know and you've had <laughs> so many more adventures than i have so one day we're gonna have to trade seats here and let you tell about some of your adventures on two wheels and other places so we can do it's that it's been a pleasure okay well thank you And there you have it. That's my conversation with caver, not spelunker, Roger Lang. What an encyclopedia of knowledge and cave experiences that this guy has, that the history, everything. He's seen it all. Um, I'm so glad I got to have that conversation with him. Um, as always, if you like the show, please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, otherwise, stay tuned next week where I'll have another conversation with another Chattanooga local. Bye.